Well, I, I want to introduce you to a man named Charles Taylor. Unless you're somebody who is a philosopher, you probably a philosophy student, you've probably never heard of him. Charles uh, Taylor is a, is a living philosopher, and uh, he's sort of the foremost writer on our, on our modern era that's been kind of called the secular age. He has a book after that same title called The Secular Age, and one of the arguments that he makes in this book is that we in our late modern culture, you in your 21st century world, live in a world that is that views the world as disenchanted. That's a very important word. Now, what does he mean by disenchanted? He means that we have a proclivity. The way that we see the world is to not see the world like people from centuries ago that just sort of assumed that there was an intimate connection between what is seen and what is unseen. You see, the modern world really kind of sense. Darwin's work and on has sort of began to view the world as what you see is all there is. And that's known philosophically as a scientific naturalism. In other words, the only world that you exist can be taken in through your senses. There is no such thing as the supernatural. There is no such thing as folks would have thought long ago about demons or spirits and this sort of thing. And the reason that's so important is because it affects the way that we come to texts like this. Another thing that might be helpful, you might know the author C.S. Lewis. And I love when he writes in one of his letters, uh, he actually makes this point about um, the world around us and how we see it. Listen to what he he says about this. This is C.S. Lewis, who we'll actually hear more from later. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils or like about demons and spirits. One is to disbelieve in their existence, so to not believe that they're real. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. What is he saying? You can fall off the horse on two ways, and it makes, makes the devils, as it were, equally pleasing. So why do I share, why do I start off with a quote about the world around us, the, the world that is seen and the world that is unseen? Here's why. Because the Christian vision of the world holds a view of the world that says, what you see is actually not all that there is. That there's things that our eyes can't perceive. Things that our fingers can't touch. That our noses cannot smell. And that whole world that exists sort of beyond our eyes, as it were, is being talked about in this text. Peter assumes it. And I want to suggest to you tonight, here's the reason why it's so important that we start here. Because tonight we're going to talk about suffering. The next chunk of our letter dives deep into what it means to experience suffering in the life of a believer because all is not well with the world. And if you live into a world that only lives in such a way that sees what is before your eyes, you're going to end up with a ton of problems in your life. Why? Because there are some things that will come into your life that are not explainable, that can't be demonstrated, cannot be seen, that cannot be understood with your eyes only. And so there must be another world, as it were. There must be something else out there that we have to be able to understand if we're going to be able to understand what it means to suffer. And y'all, here's what I want you to see tonight. It's precisely because of this word to us tonight that we are going to see that Jesus really does meet us 
in this text. In other words, Jesus comes to us as the great sufferer and meets us in our suffering. And the way that we often think about suffering is as follows. We think this, that we believe that if we're suffering, that God must be poorly disposed to us. Have you ever thought that? Some tragedy comes in your life, an injury, the death of a friend. Life just sucks for a while. And a lot of you have grown up in a world that says, if you're suffering, there must be some sin in your life. So what you need to do is to get at the heart of it, figure that out, confess it, and then things will start going well with you. And I just want to suggest to you that's not what the Bible teaches. The book of Job tells us as much when we learn about Job's life and the sorrow and the pain that entered it, and we learn this, that in all of this, Job did not sin, the Bible tells us. You see, here's what I want you to understand tonight. This passage that Peter is writing is for people who really are hurting. And it's interesting what he writes, isn't it? That he would write to people who are hurting these things. And my great hope for you is that you will begin to see that when suffering comes into your life, that there is a Christ, there is a God who suffers with you. That's what we're going to look at tonight. And so I want to just start by saying I really only have two points, and they are Christ's suffering is our comfort, and that Christ's suffering is actually our triumph. So let's take a look at what I mean by Christ's suffering is our triumph. I'm going to add, do you have the thing? Can I use it, please? Thank you so much. All right, so here we go. Christ's suffering is our comfort. What do I mean by that? Well, look look with me at verse 18, and let's remember where we are in the story. You see, Peter has been writing. If you even look back up in your Bibles, if you have it, He's saying this. He's saying, I want you to live in such a way that you, that you live with gentleness and respect in front of other people. Then you have a good conscience so that when you are slandered or that when those revile your good behavior in Christ, they may be put to shame. Peter is talking to believers who know very well either what suffering is or it's about to come. And then he, then, then he jumps into verse 18 and he says, For Christ also suffered. And what you have to understand is that verse 18 and everything that follows it all the way to verse 22 is is providing context, is providing clarity on this idea that we as followers of Christ will likely face suffering. You see, here's why. They're being slandered and reviled for living for Christ in the world. And this treatment may cause sorrow or it may cause doubt or wondering if it's all worth it in the first place. But listen what Peter says, friends. Peter says Christ himself has suffered too. You see it in verse 18, that Christ also suffered. There it is. You see, he too, Jesus knows what it is like to suffer. And this means that we have a God in Christianity who knows our experience And that's meant to be profoundly comforting to you. He knows what it is like to go through suffering. And let me show you why I think it's in fact comforting. Think of the way that you can have an experience in your life that someone else has gone through before you, that same experience. It might be as simple as like taking a particular accounting class in the business school or something, right? And you know that your friend has walked ahead of you in that and they're able to say, what? You'll get through it, or then that was really hard. I know that test was a, you know, a beat down. And, you know, it just, there can be something very comforting about that. Or maybe if somebody has gone through an injury, you know, you blow out your ACL or you get sick or something, 
And have you not had that experience in life where somebody's been able to say, I hurt my knee too, and I know what it's like. And in those moments, what happens? You begin to feel almost a connection, right? And there's these more serious events as well. Maybe there's, you know, maybe there's something going wrong in the sense of like, maybe something's wrong at home. There's a breakup in the home, right? Maybe an estranged sibling or a divorce or something like that in the house. Or it might be something like a breakup with a relationship. I think you can understand what I'm getting at, right? That when somebody's able to go through a similar experience, there's this intimate connection with the one who has walked that road before you. And what this text is telling us is very simple. That in Jesus, we have someone who has walked our suffering before us. I love what the writer of Hebrews says. He says this. Can you read it? For we do not have a high priest, referencing Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in who every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, what this saying is, is that Jesus and His suffering is intimately connected with us. But you also have to see from the text the nature of that suffering. You see, Christians suffer in the world just by, the, by virtue of the nature of being a follower of Christ at times. But Christ suffers, that you catch it in verse 18, for sins. His suffering was one for sin, for our sin. Jesus was suffering for our sin. That's what's so critical. You see it there. The unrighteousness who He suffered for. The righteous person being Jesus, He is the one that suffers for whom? For the unrighteous. And who are the unrighteous? Well, dear friends, it's you and me. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul wrote? No one is righteous. No, not one. And what you begin to see is that what lies at the very heart of Christianity is a kind Savior who takes on suffering and sorrow for your unrighteousness. And so the very suffering that the Lord of the universe takes is because of you and me. That's meant to humble us. It's meant to sober us. And it's also meant to show us a picture of the kindness of God for us. That He would so gladly do this. Here's what I want you to see. Imagine this illustration here where there's a man holding a loaded gun, right? The hand, the fingers on the trigger, it's pointing it forward. And then right before the trigger is fired, another person jumps in front of the bullet and takes it. He may even die. He may even die for that wound. And the question is, was this act heroic? Was it in fact sacrificial? Well, it all depends. What? It actually depends if he was taking the bullet for somebody else. You see, you have to know the reason that he jumped in front of the bullet. If he just jumped in front of the bullet, it's not heroic, it's stupid. Right? Who would do that? But if he's giving his life for another, then this is beautiful. And what this text is telling us is that Jesus didn't just die. There was a purpose for His death. He, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous. And the text tells us why. To bring us to God. And dear friends, what that means is is that Jesus' very suffering on our behalf is meant to be a profound comfort. Because Peter's point is, is that when you see Jesus has suffered for you, It tells you, it helps you in your experience. But when you see that He has suffered in your place, dear friends, there is profound comfort for you. 
He took your death to give you a comfort and a security that you not only don't deserve, but here's the good news, but a comfort and a security that you also cannot lose. And that's what's so rich. So how do we drive this home with a few points of application? Here's what I want you to see first of all. Did you notice that in the midst of people that are suffering, what Peter is saying is he's saying you need depth. You need, in the midst of your suffering, theological depth. You need ballast. You need roots. Because the last thing, and this is what I love, the Bible just does not do this. When you're suffering in your life, it never just sort of pats you on your back and says, there, there. It'll get easier. That's not what it does. Nor does it say, sorry, I don't know what to tell you in the midst of your sorrow. But what the Bible does is it comes to you and it gives you rich and deep theology. That there is a God who suffers in your place. And that's what you need to hear. Because if you've ever gone through a trial in your life, you're wondering, what does God think of me? And I've been pastoring enough long on this campus that many of you in this room have come to me and talked to me about the sorrows in your life. And the thing that has meant the most as you've spoken this back to me is to say, I just never knew that Jesus loved me like that. I never knew that He cared for me like that. And dear friends, that is what this text is giving you. It wants you to see the depth. It wants you to give you hard and fast truth to be able to help you in your suffering. Secondly, it also means this, that when you're going through suffering as a Christian, and this is just meant to wash over you in comfort, that you never, ever, ever suffer alone. You never do. There is no such thing as suffering alone as a Christian. That Christ is with us. That whenever you are excluded, whenever you bear reproach for following Jesus, whenever you are maligned in His name, He really is with you. So to go out on that date, as it were, and to not give in physically or sexually or whatever it might be in that case, do you know who is with you? Jesus is with you. What it's like to go to the party and to see other people hurting one of your friends and you're afraid that if I speak up, I will be ostracized by the group. And to step in and to speak into somebody who is vulnerable and powerless in the moment. To do that in that moment. To bring scorn on you in that moment. Jesus is with you. That's what this text is telling us. That when we suffer for Jesus... We always suffer with Jesus because He's right there with us. That's what this text wants us to see. Well, there's many, there's many, there are many, many, many more things that we could say about this text, but here's the thing that I basically want you to understand. That Jesus, by suffering for us, He is the one that now gives us comfort. It gives us comfort to know that He has done this with us. And let me just pause for a moment and just address this ever so briefly. Many of you will say to me, Ron, how in the world the problem of suffering in the life of a believer is the very reason that I cannot be, be a Christian? Because if there's a good God, like Christianity asserts, how in the world can there be such pain in the world and in my life? See, it's the old sort of question of how can a good and all good and an all powerful God allow for suffering in the world? And I just want to say to you tonight, there's no way I can fix that like that. And I would just suggest to you, if that's a real question that you're having, I'll buy you coffee. I'll buy you lunch. And we will talk about it. The little nugget that I'm going to leave you with, that 
it's all I can do tonight, I'm sorry, is to say this, that just because we cannot think of a reason why God would allow suffering to come into our lives, just because we cannot think of a reason, does not mean that there isn't one. And that's why I started with Charles Taylor. That's why I started with C.S. Lewis. Because if you're only looking in this world, you'll never be able to make sense of your suffering. You have to understand that there might be something else out there that I don't quite see, I don't quite know. I live with limited knowledge. And to be humble in this world is to actually help you make sense of your suffering. I love what the old writer, a man named William Cooper, if you ever see it, it's written C-O-W-P-E-R. This was a man who struggled with depression his whole life. Abby, can I get you to flick that silver light down for me? I'll just throw that down for the rest. Of the, yeah, this will be perfect. I want you all to read this poem that he wrote. and it's, Many people have put it to music. It's beautiful. It's the last three stanzas. I'm just going to read it for you. and This might help you as you begin to think about the suffering that comes to you in your life. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain. That is the promise of the Christian hope that one day you will see every sorrow that has ever come into your life, that God will tell you, He will reveal it. But until that day, dear friends, we often live tasting the bitter bud, waiting for the sweet flower. That really is the Christian vision of hope and how we think about suffering. Well, secondly, I want to turn our eyes to Christ's triumph. The Christ's suffering is our triumph. And here's what I want to begin to dig in on. This is where the text gets funky. So hang on, okay? This is where the text gets a little wild uh, uh, for us. My point here is I want you to begin to see how when Christ suffers, it is actually our triumph. You're going to say, the triumph over what? And what does that mean? Here's what I mean. We get a glimpse of this here in Peter. We get a glimpse of the cosmic Christ. That is that Christ is the one who is over all things. The Apostle Paul, he wrote this in Colossians chapter 1. By Him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. In other words, Paul and Peter in our text assume that Jesus has made a world that is not only seen, but that is unseen. And it is critical if we're going to understand the real crux of this verse in verse 19. Did you see it? It says this. I'm going to be starting up in 18. Being put to death, that is Jesus, in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And here's where it gets funky. In which He, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What the heck does that mean? Because they formally did not obey. What does that mean? When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, I think I know what that means, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, I know what that means, were brought safely through the water. So let's dig in. Okay? Y'all, there's a lot of different... There's so much ink spilled on this. I have a stack of folders that have just been reading through. It's, it's cray-cray, okay? But here's the thing I want you to understand. 
Lots of different interpretations on this. All by godly men who love Jesus. Godly women who love Jesus who have written about this. Who believe and trust the Bible to be true. And here's what I'm going to make my best attempt at doing. When Peter was writing this letter, there was a cultural mindset predominantly based on an old writing, a book called the book of First Enoch. You're going to say, what is that? Coffee. Coffee, y'all. Coffee. <laughs> okay? But it basically said, it, again, it's not scripture, but it was a historical written document that basically said that, um, that it created a grid work that people would have had in their mind when they understood the work and the person of Noah from the Old Testament. And basically, there, there was this belief that there, were these, that there were evil spirits that sort of participated in the demise and downfall of mankind. And you can read about this in Genesis chapter 6 if you want, where you begin to hear that there are these angels intermarrying with women and they're having offspring. It's, I'm not saying it's easy to understand. I'm just telling you that's what it is, Okay. Now, why is this so important? Because what I think, my best reading, the best that I can make sense of it is this. That, that, that when Christ was resurrected, in and by the Spirit, that in the realm or in the locus of the spiritual world, Christ by His Spirit goes and proclaims to evil spirits that He is Lord of all. That He rules and as it were, he puts his boot heel on the neck of all things evil and wicked. That's basically what this text is telling us. And he not only does that to those things that are evil and wicked, but he notice in verse 22 it says this as well, that he has now actually gone into heaven bodily, is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What's the point? The point is, is this, that Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension has secured his victory over all of the cosmic forces of evil and the evil that they bring about on the earth. And the point is, therefore, that Jesus really is Lord, not just over of what is seen, but is the one that is over all things unseen as well. That is the very thing that you have to understand. Now let me take up this business about baptism which now saves you, which now corresponds to this, now saves you. The point there is, you'll remember from the Noah story, there was eight people that went into the ark, the flood waters came, and those eight people were in fact delivered from the judgment of God. And what this text is saying is that baptism now symbolizes that salvation. And whereas this text is telling us that you might see this and say, so does this mean that if I've been baptized that I'm automatically saved? No. That's not what this text is saying. Because it's not in the power of water, whether you have been immersed or sprinkled, whether you were a child or an adult. The power for new life Paul and Peter tells us is what? It says it right here. It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where the saving power comes from. 
Again, if you want to talk about this more, I would love to. I love talking about baptism. And in fact, if you're a Christian and you've never been baptized, I would love to talk to you about how you can get that done. Because it's a wonderful gift that God gives His people to picture and to show to Him the great love that He has for them. And so anyways, I'll just leave that there. I did want to touch upon it, and I did want to drive this home. Let's go back to what I'm trying to say, though. The point is is that Christ is our victor. That He is the one that triumphs over all evil and all wickedness. And what this is telling us is that how He did it, what were the mechanisms by which that He became the victor, and this is where it gets fun. I've used this illustration before. I'm going to use it again because it's the best one I got. How many of y'all know what judo is? Okay, great. How many of you have ever done judo? Oh, okay, of course, Mario has. Uh, Don't mess with that man. He'll get you, okay? The basic principle of judo, in case you've never done it, is you're trying to use your opponent's momentum against them. They attack or lunge forward. You, you use that momentum to spin and to turn points and to pin them or whatever else it is, okay? That's what it is. And what I'm trying to say about judo is this, is that in death, when Jesus took on death on the cross, He was actually doing judo with death. That He was leveraging death's weight against itself to pin it and to kill it. Because the great promise and hope of the Christian gospel is, is that by suffering and dying, Jesus mastered death. And that's why you can say over and over again in Christianity, you can read over and over again, is that the power of the resurrection comes from the fact that our risen Lord has blown the back, blown the back of, I mean like an exit wound. You know what I'm talking about? Jesus has delivered an exit wound to the institution or the mechanism of death itself. And that is meant to be profoundly encouraging to you. Because if you are in Christ, the great hope for you is that you too will blow the back out of death. And what that means for Peter and his readers and for you and me is this, is that death is not your final end. And you may think, why do I need to know that? I'm 19 years old. Who really cares? Let me tell you why. Because 19-year-olds die. Because I've pastored long enough on this campus to see way too many college students die. And you all need to understand the great hope that is yours if you are staring down death. That has always been one of the greatest gifts that Christianity gives its followers is that we know how the story ends. And at the end of time, we basically give death the middle finger and say, nice try. That's the great hope of, God, of the gospel, dear friends. The resurrection is true. And it's true for you and for me. I want you to see that, that your story does not end in death and that you too will rise to new life. One more thing that I would just want you to notice is that this. What do we do when we actually suffer? When we're actually experiencing some sort of evil in our lives? And I want to say that Jesus Himself helps us. What do we do? He says to pray. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer? Deliver us from evil. That Jesus is saying that one of the ways that you deal with evil and suffering in your life is that you go to Jesus and you say, Dear Jesus, deliver me from this harm. Protect me from this harm. I'm your child. Will you please hear me? Will you please rescue me? And that's meant to be a profound comfort for you in this this very uh, true text. 
Well, I'm going to land the plane now, but before I do that, we have a little bit of things I need to touch on, and that is, I want to go back to this phrase about bringing us to God. You see, this is key for us to understand what Peter is trying to get at. Peter wants to know that the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus that he talks about here actually affects or brings about that which we lost in the garden. We lost God's face. We lost His presence. That when our first parents decided to take of the fruit, we lost God's face. And now because of the work of Christ, we now have access being brought back to God. That our Father sees us again. And that one day the great promise of the Christian Gospel is that we will see Him face to face forever. That's our great hope. And I love what C.S. Lewis says in one of his books from the Narnia Tales is from the Silver Chair. And I just want to read, I love story times. We're about to have story time for just a moment, okay? This is the part of the story where there is an evil sorceress. She is the lady of the green kirtle, okay? And she has put a spell on four characters, Jill, Eustace, Rillian, and Puddleglum. And the spell is that she has brought them to the underworld and she's keeping them there and she's lighting this fire and the smoke from the fire is very, very sweet and it's keeping them in a trance and they've lost all memory of the world where Aslan, the great lion, lives and the sunshine and rivers and creeks and and valleys. The beautiful world, she's put them under a spell and has told them that it no longer exists. And Puddleglum, the character, walks over to the fire where this... A pleasing aroma is coming out and steps on it and puts out a little bit of the fire and she gets angry at him and she says don't you do that if you do that again I'll pour this stuff through your veins and it will and it'll eat you up basically it'll, it'll catch you on fire and he walks back to his spot and he says this and I'm just going to read it's amazing one word ma'am he said coming back from the fire limping because of the pain one word all you've been saying is quite right I shouldn't wonder I'm a chap who always liked to know the worst and then put the best face on that I can. So I won't deny any of what you said. But there's one more thing to be said even so. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Well, then all I can say is that in that case, the made up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think of it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as a Narnian, as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. So thanking you kindly for our supper, if these two gentlemen and young lady are ready, we're leaving your court at once and setting out in the dark to spend our lives looking for overland. Not that our lives will be very long, I should think, but that's a small loss if the world's a dull place, as you say it is. Lewis is saying a better world. A better world of hope exists. And it has a bearing on the one that we live in. 
And it is so wonderful, so beautiful, so compelling. It's absolutely worth seeking after. What is that world that lies just beyond our eyes? It's the true and better world where Christ really has conquered and secured for us a future and a hope. He has won. He has conquered. He is sitting now on the throne, reigning and ruling, ordering all things for your salvation and for your good. And the promise that is at the very center of that great hope is this, that we have been brought near to God. We have access to the presence and face of God because Christ has secured it. He has crushed all our real enemies. Crushed them, y'all. The one seeking to do us harm. And in so doing, He is able to comfort us in our suffering and guarantee the eventual end of it altogether. Let's pray. Lord, may we, like Puddle Glum, set out in the dark to spend our lives looking for the more beautiful world. And may that have a bearing on us that gives us hope and comfort for us in our suffering. This is our great hope that Jesus has done this for us. Give us faith to believe it. Give us eyes to see it. Give us hearts to trust it because we so desperately need it, this side of it. Lord, we love you. And we ask that you would help us to see in your name. Amen.